Our guest today is Adam Gonzalves. He's a mastering engineer based out of Portland, Oregon. He owns Telegraph Mastering and has worked with Elliot Smith, Peter Buck, Willie Nelson, Sufjan Stevens, Vampire Weekend, The Jayhawks, and Team Dresch. We talk with Adam about the proximity effect of your studio's location, the struggles of building a mastering studio, and he took Dan's vinyl mastering quiz. This episode's music is brought to you by Ryan Wright from Washington, D.C. For more information about Ryan and her music, point your internets to Spotify and search Ryan Wright. Adam, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate taking the time to chat with us. My pleasure, man. It's good to see you guys. Adam, can you give us just a thumbnail about who you are, where you got started, and how that journey led you to where you are today? Sure, I'll I'll try to do this quickly. Um, uh, so my name is Adam Gonzalves. I'm the owner and senior engineer at Telegraph Mastering in Portland, Oregon. I came to this position professionally because, uh, like a lot of other people, I I got bit by the recording bug very young. I was lucky to, in my early twenties, um, be in a band that toured around a lot and um, was signed to first one label and then another label and had time in professional studios and, you know, lifelong musician, but it was my time in the studios. I was, I was always the guy in the band sort of standing over the engineer's shoulder, asking him what he was doing. And those experiences sort of got into me. I don't really understand what's going on here, but I'd like it to be part of what I do. And uh, so I went to undergraduate in uh, Washington, DC. And after I graduated, I worked at a facility called Anchor Hold Recording, and uh, I did tracking and then mixing there. In Gustus would be 2003 or 2004, I uh, applied to what at the time was the first class for uh, NYU's master's degree in music technology and audio production. That was the first time that they were offering that at the master's degree level. There's a very limited amount of slots. I figured, what the hell, I'll apply. Maybe I'll get in. I got in. And it was really at NYU that I saw mastering engineers in real studios. You know, they, they had a studio A and a studio B. And it, observing that, observing the professors and the and the professionals who who came in to instruct us, I just said, oh, I'm, I know I'm going to be better at this than I am at tracking and mixing. And so I, from that point, I pivoted. I was hired out of that program uh, to help set up the studio in Oakland. And I worked at that studio uh, for a little while, and then I hung out my own shingle as Telegraph Mastering, and it was born in Oakland on Telegraph Avenue. That's where the name comes from. And uh, in 2009, I moved from Oakland uh, to Portland, and I've been here ever since. Right. And then what made you move to Portland? The economics and reality of life in the Bay Area. I mean, it was it's even crazier now, but at the time, I had been looking for a a really permanent place for the studio. And I was also looking for a a home I was renting at the time. And I spent a year looking every weekend with uh, like real estate agents and commercial people. And the closest thing that I could find that was realistically in my budget is, was like a complete shithole in the worst neighborhood in the city. <laughs> and, uh, and I had been to Portland um, uh, a bunch before my, uh, the person I was with at the time was also went to college in Portland and uh, you know, I was building a new studio. So I, I sort of figured I could set it up wherever I wanted, uh, just plant my flag and just get going. And that's what, that's what brought us up here was just that it was um, I think for young people, it can be really important if you're going to take a shot at something to take a shot at it in a place where the overhead's low enough that you don't need, you know, right away to get a quote unquote real job. You don't need to go to law school. You don't need to go whatever. And you can, you can try and and maybe not stick the landing right away and learn a couple lessons and fail softly and get yourself back on your feet. And, and just having the room to do that, there really wasn't the room to do that in Oakland. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think, Portland is still maybe a little less so now, but, but at, at that time, you know, over 10 years ago, it was very much a place where uh, you could move here and, and do that. And there, I think places like that in America are really special and there's, there's getting to be less and less of them. 
So that was the the reason. It wasn't wasn't anything more complicated than that. Excellent. Yeah, that was one of the reasons I moved to Baltimore, Maryland um, from Washington, D.C., was a, a lot of the economics and a lot of the in a city that's affordable, you have more arts and more music. So there was a lot more going on here than there was in D.C., which is a much more expensive place to live. It's interesting, though, you moved to Portland, started a mastering studio about, is it, did you say about 10 years ago? It was 2009. So, uh, so a little more than it? that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's more than 10 years ago. Yeah. So I visited Portland around then, maybe a little bit earlier. And one thing I noticed, every block had a recording studio and a record store. Um, yeah. So when you moved in there as a full-fledged mastering studio, you must have been pretty unique. Yeah, there were there were two studios who were he here before me, proper, dedicated mastering studios. That's uh, Gus Elg, Sky Onion, and Timothy Stallenwork, Stereophonic. They're both still here, by the way. Uh, but it was Portland... Uh, over a decade ago was a great place to get started because it's one of these places where it has, I don't even know what Portland counts as officially, like a tertiary music market. You know, if, if New York, LA and Nashville are the primary music markets and then you, you know, you get your Austin's and, and what have you, they would be secondary music markets, but Portland's probably tertiary. But for the size of the city, it's like it has a bigger, it's, it's like the music community from bigger city got beamed down into a smaller city. It's like, it's like you said, there's record stores everywhere. Everybody's in a band. There's recording studios all over the place. Um, and the old location for the studio before I had the Northwood room built, it was right down the street from jackpot. Awesome. Um, so Larry, yeah. so Larry Crane and I became great friends and we had this sort of like pipeline where I was, I was right down the road from him. And so there was a, a lot of, there's an enormous client base, not only, independent artists and labels, but also mixing engineers who wanted to partner with mastering engineers. You know, I was lucky that I moved to a place at a time where there was um, openness in that way and room to establish connections and forge and, and maintain relationships that I still have now. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see the parallels between Portland and Baltimore. I love, I love seeing that sort of a shift. Um, do you have a commercial space right now or is it part of your home? No, no, this is not part of my home. No, uh, the studio is like six and a half miles away. So it's, you know, it's whatever, 35, 40 minute bike ride. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, it has not, the studio has nothing to do with my house. So it's the original far enough away. Yeah, yeah. The original location for the studio was also not in my house, but it was on the property of the house that I lived in at the time. So there was a building, a detached building behind the home that I think had been used for like boat storage or parts for, but it was, so it was a nice big building. Um, and I did what I think a lot of people do is the kind of like best you can compromise build without structurally changing the building. And that worked for a long time. So how did you deal with working in a space that was next to your home with a family um, you know, with your social life, were you able to shut it off or, you know, it's there, you walk in on the weekend just cause you can. Yeah, man. I, so it doesn't sound like a big deal, but having it in a building that was detached from my home rather than having it in my home counted for quite a bit. Um, you, you know, that just that short distance of having to walk 15 feet, um, mentally, I think was important. And in terms of having time and space that was dedicated to the studio and maintaining boundaries, it was it was better than if it had just been inside of my house. That said, I had awful work-life boundaries for a, a very, very long time. And I was constantly, you know, if I got an email from a client and it was on the weekend and I was out somewhere, I knew that whenever I got back, I could just take care of it right then, right? Or or if I uh, something came up and I could just do a revision, you know, leave the movie that I was watching, like, you know, in the house and like just run out and do the revision really quick because I know it would only take me 20 minutes to do. Like, I did that kind of shit all the time. And my older son uh, was born in uh, 2012 and my younger son was born in 2015. So I had a couple years after I moved to Portland uh, before I started a family, but 
yeah, I mean, like those those early years of being a a, a father of young kids and growing this business that was like very close to the house then that I didn't have great boundaries around. I mean, I've there's photos of me of the during that time, dude, and I'm like, I don't even remember. I was I'm like a ghost. <laughs> That's amazing. So you did notice a difference once your studio was physically further away. Did you notice a change in your mental health at all? Yeah, man, I mean, I don't think that my mental health was suffering. I think I had just cultivated really bad habits around work. Right. And it's it's so there's a couple I'm I'm going to answer your question and then I'm going to explain. So unequivocally, yes. Having the studio some distance away from the home is just like boundaries are enforced now by just the fact that if I if I leave the studio and go pick my kids up from school and I'm at home and I'm making them dinner and there's like that emergency email that comes up, it's like, yeah, man, I'll get to this to like when it gets got to. I don't know, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> There's no world in which I'm like leaving the environment that I'm in now and like going to take care of this. Uh and so you just have to because there is physical distance that's enforced, like you have to shut it off. And there, you know, emergencies come up. I host my own server for client file transfer. And so having, you know, a server in the building that manages all of that and then I can maintain is great. But whatever, sometimes it goes down and then nobody can move any files. And then I I really do have to like, you know, leave at quarter to 10 on a weekday to get over here and like restart the server and do all that stuff. That that stuff does happen, but it happens way, way less. And it's, it's really like true emergencies and true problems that make me violate that rule rather than just a message I saw that I'm, I'm just reacting to. But it's an exception, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's an exception. And I, and yeah, so it, it wasn't that my, it, yeah, I, I think my mental health suffering would, it would be like overstating the case. It was just this cultivation of bad habits. And and one of the reasons about the, you know, one of the core reasons about the cultivation of these bad habits is that it's, it is like your studio and dance studios and lots of other people's studios. This, this is mostly me. It's ju it's just me, and it's it's my name and my reputation, and it's it's not like I work for someone else and can turn it off at five p.m. because I'm you know I made money for the boss and now I'm going home, right? It's it's that this project is my career. Nobody is responsible for it other than me, and I felt that pressure for a long time, really, really intensely. I used to be terrible about going on vacation because I was, I'm sure you had the experience where you're about to go on vacation. It's a couple of days beforehand. And then like a flood of work comes in, by the way, to anybody listening to this, if you want to get booked out, plan a trip, <laughs> plan a trip. And then an avalanche of work will come into your inbox. <laughs> it's inevitable. I started to actually pad my out of office reply by one or two days on each end, just because of that. Cause it's inevitable. Yeah. You're going to get flooded. It's in, it's I don't know why, but it's it it happens almost without fail. Yep. And but when that would happen, right the 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 sort of normal, um, uh, healthy way to 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 do that would just be like, wow, I've got a lot of stuff, and the, the out of office replies hitting it, and I'm uh, I'll get to it when I get back. And you know I would worry about when I was on vacation, I'd be you know actively you know, replying to things and a lot of times not being super present, not doing the thing that I'm supposed to do with the vacation, which is unwind and relax. Um, and I, yeah, am much better about that now. And part of that is just a function of, of distance. Um, it was nice in the early years to have the studio in the place that it was for convenience and also to just keep overhead low. Right. Um, but Portland is not LA or New York. So it's not like my overhead is massive if, anyway, even with being in a commercial place that has rent and it's well worth it, I think. Yeah. And Adam, just to stay there for just a, a quick follow-up question. Do you find when you enforce those boundaries you're describing, do you find that clients will push back during those times? No, dude, nobody cares. It's all, it's all <laughs> coming from, 
an internal place, right? It's like the, um, I think sometimes we, I'm not even going to say we, because I'm not going to put that on you guys. I think sometimes I could think about clients in a way that is like very generic. Like there's this, this sort of monolith and that they're not people and that they don't understand. And it's, it's like when you raise your rates, right? For me, whenever I have raised my rates throughout my career, I've, there's always this moment of panic, like, oh my God, nobody's ever going to fucking use me again. Like this, the people who are used to paying for this are not going to pay for the new rate. What? Like, this is a disaster. Like I might as well like pack up all my stuff and, and no one, <laughs> if they notice at all, which most people don't, they don't care. And so outside of the, you know, the, the, the exceptions where it's like, Hey, uh, I, you know, I'm a client in the UK and I have like a UK deadline and I'm nine hours ahead of you. And so we, I absolutely have to hit this thing because my manager's on my back and there's press and all this stuff. It's like, yes, that is of course, right. Like a firm thing that has to be respected and you, you pr provide the service that people need on the, on the timeline that they need it. But the vast majority of people are ex extraordinarily understanding. I mean, maybe I'm just lucky and I have great clients, but uh, I, I think the, 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 the apprehension that I had about like letting people down was not real. It was entirely manufactured by me. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I guess everyone's experience can be different in that way. There can be certain clients that will scoff at those sorts of things. And I've had that experience where, I mean, I, I have raised my rates within the last two years, reluctantly, like you described, <laughs> uh, fearing the pushback, but, um, you know, maybe one or two people have spoken up and saying, you know, Hey, I, I kind of feel a little priced out by this. And if they're sure. long, long-term clients, um, you know, that we have a regular relationship where we work together a lot. I mean, I will, I will try to accommodate them, uh, the best I can, but I feel like, and that's a, another territory we should probably maybe touch on, you know, kind of how to strategize about your rate, the trajectory of your rate, you know, um, because yeah. at a certain point they do have to go up and it is really scary to do that, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I think for everybody. But um, one thing I think we've talked about in the past were those boundaries where I think you told me once, um, you know, like you just do not entertain emails or any client communication on the weekends period and you're kind of willing to lose a client if that's a deal breaker for them is that is that true is that still the case is that accurate yeah that is the case man i um the exception to that is uh if somebody calls me and it's not a number i recognize and i pick it up and it's someone inquiring about work i'm not going to hang up the phone on them they've like they've got me on the phone and will We'll have a short chat, uh, but I don't book sessions on the weekend. I don't work on the weekend. Um, and I, I try my best to keep correspondence during weekdays. That's an, you know, that's an enormously broad amount of time, uh, weekdays from very early in the morning into the evening to be able to communicate with people and protecting a couple of days, uh, to make sure that I can be uh, present in the other ways that I need to be present in my life seems like a really reasonable thing to do. And, uh, so yeah, with the exception of, you know, the phone call from an unknown number that I pick up, uh, I don't really work on the weekends. And it's, I think it's important for people to remember that, you know, client correspondence and scheduling and this, this stuff is all work. It's, it's the work that you need to do basically that you were not paid for so that you can show up on Monday and do the work that you are paid for. But corresponding and scheduling and doing all that stuff, that's, that is a job function. If you didn't have that job, you wouldn't be doing that. So it's good to think about that stuff as work and, and, um, uh, create a, a sort of mental structure around it. That is a, that is a work structure, uh, so that you're not, uh, doing what I did, which was sort of endlessly checking the phone at all times of the day or night to respond to people as quickly as you possibly can. Yeah. Isn't that the normal, like 
you know, artist mentality though, as a freelancer, you're always afraid that it's going to disappear. <laughs> like it's perpetual. Yeah, man. I, I think any, any freelancer or any small business owner that has anything to do with the art, the first couple of years is just, can I fly? Like, is it possible for me to get off the ground? And then, then you start to get worried about the maintenance of flight, right? I'm in the air, but am I going to stay in the air? And at a certain point, I, I mean, you, I think you do have to just like, like let go of that fear. Just like, yeah, I'm flying and I've been flying for a while and I'm, I, it's, I'm not going to crash. Uh, and it, you know, it can, it can take a while. I think a lot of that is like personality dependent, but um, yeah, it can, it can take a minute to, to feel sort of settled about that. And it also, you know, depends so much of that is also like what the, what the other parts of your life are. If you, uh, you know, I, I didn't have kids young, so that afforded me a lot of time and flexibility when I was like getting the business started. When I first moved to Portland, I had a side job. Uh, I moved here and, and got a side job. So that was, that also like took a little bit of the pressure off. So it was, um, I think in a lot of ways, uh, um, easier for me in the beginning, you know, living in a city with low overhead, um, having the, th the stress of overhead lowered by having a side gig at the beginning. Uh, and, uh, so the the fear maybe didn't last as long in me as it as it might have or or as it might for someone else, um, but yeah, I think everybody to a certain extent feels that a little bit. I'm a little anxious to get into this this quiz we've been talking about. <laughs> okay, <laughs> maniacal laughter. Um, <laughs> Let's do it. When I think of Adam, you know, Adam is my kind of vinyl go to guru, and um, I think there's a lot of misconception that floats around about vinyl. And I'm sure Adam is very well aware of these misconceptions and, um, you know, has to feel these kinds of questions all the time. But anyway, it's not so much a quiz for Adam because Adam knows the answers to these questions, but this is more or less to clarify, um, some things about, you know, cutting vinyl, mastering for vinyl, et cetera, so forth that may help people get a bit of a clearer picture on, you know, the process and, and best practices. So, um, so my first question, uh, this is basically a true or false, Adam. Okay. Yeah, um, yeah you got it. Man. My first question is removing the final brick wall limiter from your pre-master will result in a better sounding cut. True or false? Usually true. Yeah. So what is the, the gray area on this question? Yeah. So the only, um, I'm going to preface uh not as a as a means to dodge you know just giving succinct answers but to give a totally correct and holistic answers there's two things that i want to say up front first of all the answer a lot of the times with vinyl is it depends um and so some of the answers are going to start with it depends i guess with that in mind the other thing is uh, i'll i'll try to uh shoot for the center. So most projects, most of the time, right? So the reason that you should take your brick wall limiter off is because a brick wall limiter is used overwhelmingly, as we know, to increase the level of something and make it louder for digital consumption, either on CD or streaming services or, or digital distribution services. Uh, it's important for people to understand that the La that the level, the VU meter level, the LUFs, whatever you want to call it, of the of the pre-master that's delivered for cutting has absolutely nothing to do with how loud the record will be. Nothing to do with it. And uh, if it is properly mastered for vinyl, you can you can give a your engineer something that is peaking at negative 12, or you can give them something that is crushed to death, and it will not matter for how loud the record is because the loudness of a record is, a, is the function of lots of interconnected things, but mostly it has to do with the side time. The one time when it might be better or might be preferable, right? Because um, the word that you use was sound better, right? There are people who like 
the sound of what a brick wall limiter does. Adding all this clipping information, making it sound more aggressive, making it sound more, um, uh, have, have that edge to it. And if that's what you want, then leave it on if you're using it for Sonics. But we all know that most people are not using it for Sonics. So for the the one project out of 25 where the the presence of the limiter is really important for the sound because they like the sound of the clipping, then leave it on. But the other 24 projects, take it off. It has enough it, all all you're doing is gobbling up transients uh that would make the record sound better where they still present. Excellent. So moving on to the next question. The mixer or pre-mastering engineer should mono the low end before sending it to the vinyl cutting stage. True or false? False. Don't do that. Love it. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Done. And just, and just, uh, just as a point of clarification. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So the reason is, is as much as, uh, as people who are preparing files for mastering can resist the temptation to anticipate what I am going to do. Uh, it'll be better, and I and the reason for that is that there's a there's so much partially true or or flat out misinformed things about uh, about vinyl. So let me let me give you an example. The reason that you would have to mono the low end is because of the way that stereo is cut on a disc. Okay. Stereo is cut in two axes. So uh, mono information, so information that, that appears in both speakers at the same time, creates causes the cutter head and therefore your playback needle to move laterally. It wiggles side to side as it is cutting. Things that are panned outward, or if you're thinking about a mid-side matrix, the side part of the mid-side matrix is cut vertically. That causes the cutter head and therefore your playback stylus to wiggle up and down. So a ton of out-of-phase information in the low end creates these wild vertical swings that are really mechanically tough for a playback stylus to trace, right? So typically what will happen is people don't know that. They just know that, that things should be monoed. And they'll way overcompensate, right? Oh, hey, don't worry about it, man. I watched this YouTube video about how to prepare stuff for vinyl, and I and I modeled the low end for 500 hertz, like 500 hertz. Jesus Christ, dude! There's no it, that would be <laughs> if I got something like that and I had to model to 500. That's a disaster. That's not something that you should be doing as a matter of course, right? Because you're you're radically changing the stereo field, and the the job for vinyl mastering, what I'm trying to do, is get the closest and best sounding representation of the source that I was given to play on vinyl. So if I did have to elliptically EQ, you know, I might only have to elliptically EQ 90 Hertz and below. And, and I would love to leave the rest of the stereo image totally intact. So uh, because people don't know what I'm going to have to do to their album to get a good sounding cut, I do not want them to try to anticipate or guess what I'm trying to do. Or, or think about it like they're helping me. It's not helping. It's just moving the, the source that I'm given farther away from the source that was approved, right? right. The source that the band heard and liked. They yeah. didn't approve something that had the low end mono to 500 hertz. And if it's not necessary, I'm not going to do it. And that is almost never necessary. It's never necessary. It's usually not the mono to 250 hertz. Like it's... It's just like these vast overcorrections and overcompensations, um, and but people don't know. It's not their fault. They've never, they've never cut lacquer, so they don't understand. Uh, but just let me do my part of the job, and don't try to guess and help, um, because you might guess wrong, and then, and then damage the music in a way that it doesn't need to be damaged. Perfect. Yep. Okay. So next question: It is impossible to cut an over 25 minute side to vinyl false but it is ill-advised to do so right that's because vinyl is the only playback the consumer playback medium where, where i'm literally trying to fit music on 12 inches of of disc and the format 33 rpm 12 inch records were made 
for albums, they had it in mind that, that, you know, about 20 minutes per side ish around a 40 minute album, right? Like think about pick your favorite Led Zeppelin record. Right. <laughs> right. And, uh, there's lots of things that can be done to push that and you can cut longer than 20 minute sides, do it all the time. But the longer you are cutting, the longer your side becomes, uh, you're, you're forcing the signal of the record to go down, which means by comparison, the noise floor is going to sound louder. And you're also sacrificing the quality of whatever the last songs are on the side, because if we get closer to the center of the record, uh, you get an enhanced uh, probability of something called intergroove distortion happening. And, you know, at 25 minutes aside or longer, it's really, really difficult to avoid that. And usually what happens when someone submits a record that is that long, I will either uh, recommend that they get an acetate to hear how it will sound. Or if there isn't the budget for that in the strongest and kindest way that I can say, look, you are not going to be, when you get your test press, you're going to be bummed by what you hear. I promise. Right. And the record would just sound way better if you left the song off each side. Um, and, you know, offer them as digital only exclusives or choose, choose your euphemism. Right. Right. But you're not maximizing value for your fans by giving them a totally complete album that sounds like hammered dog shit. It would be better. <laughs> if there was just less music on it and the music that is present sounds better. So possible, but extremely ill-advised. Can I interject for just one second? Is it possible to fit more time on a record printing in mono? Yes. And, and, and I should say, you know, as I said before with vinyl, it always depends, right? Right. There are, so, um, so spoken word records, like comedy records, um, or just dictates of spoken word. I mean, I've cut over 30 minute sides with that because there's no percussion. There's no, it's, you know, it's a mono speaking voice, right? You can cram that in all day. Uh, there's certain kinds of electronic music, uh, like, you know, ambient music that doesn't have any percussion and that stuff can survive long side times pretty well. Um, so Yes, it depends. But if we're talking about most records, like a rock record or a pop record or a hip hop record or, you know, electronic music that does have percussion or um, or uh, Afro-Cuban jazz or, you know, anything that fits in most people's purview of music that they're listening to, that's going to be bad. And yes, if it was cut into mono, that would help a little bit. Um, but, you know, a big kick drum on a record is going to gobble up real estate and it doesn't matter if it's in mono or not. Next question. Certain vinyl colors sound better than others. Uh, that's true. So we're going to have to define better, right? Because it doesn't mean that they're going to like, if you press your record on black, it, the, the guitars sound like they're EQ differently. That's not what we mean by better. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> what, we're, what we're defining as better for vinyl is uh, a lower noise floor. And so the, the concept of noise floor in vinyl is important to understand because digital's noise floor is below the threshold of human hearing. So it doesn't come up in digital, right? But with vinyl, because we're, uh, we're dragging um, a little synthetic rock through plastic, there we we hear the noise of that. There's a little bit of hiss and crackle and hum. And what is a good sounding record, right, at a baseline is whatever the source is, whatever the signal is, is far away from that noise floor. That noise floor is way, way down and the signal is way, way up. So you can grab the volume knob on your receiver, turn it up, and you're turning the signal up without bringing a ton of noise along with it, right? So a worse sounding record is a record where the signal and the noise are very close to one another. And it's, it's difficult to ascertain details of the signal because they are obscured by the noise or the signal is fighting with the noise in some other way. So when we say a good sounding color, we mean one that all things being equal has a low noise floor. And uh, there are many colors uh, for whom the noise floor is sort of natively higher. Now, I, I have to say, I'm not a chemist, so I can't say why that is. 
but there's something about the bleaching and the dyeing of the vinyl polycarbonate compound that increases noise. Uh, I don't, I don't know what that is. I'm, I welcome the input from many chemists who, who could tell me. Um, and part of this is also uh, related to the best practices of the individual plants. So putting in a little bit of regrind, so that is the trimmings of records that have already been pressed and mixing it in with the vinyl compound, that often pushes the noise floor down. And every plant kind of has their own recipe for how much regrind to put in to keep the noise floor down. And again, I the, the chemistry is, is beyond me at this point. I don't know why mixing a little bit of cooked pasta in with the uncooked pasta makes it better, <laughs> but but it does. Right. Uh, and so, but all things being equal, black's the quietest color. And then we, you know, we move on from there, right? We've got our translucents, which are often very quiet. And then you move to your opaques. Um, uh, opaque blends can often be noisy. And then you've got your, your, your goofy shit, right? Like your glow in the dark vinyl and your <laughs> scratch and sniff vinyl. And the, you know, the stuff is not supposed to sound good anyway, because it's just, it's just a gimmick. Um, marketing. Yeah. 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 I mean, if you're, if, if you're pressing records on that, you, you don't have a leg to stand on to complain about sound quality. So, um, uh, but yes, all things being equal, if what you're thinking about is fidelity, the, you know, the concern is, is sound quality, then press on black. But I also, you know, being a fan is fun and being a collector's fun and, and having color variants is fun. It's just if you're comparing those two records and one is on, you know, green and white marble and the other's on black and you notice, hey, the black one sounds a little less ticky and a little less hissy, you're probably right. And, you know, we're talking about varying degrees also, right? I mean, based on someone's playback system, based on somebody's, you know, I mean, the variables are endless. Yes. You know, the quality of somebody's deck, you know, et cetera, so forth. So that's awesome. So um, lastly direct to metal mastering for vinyl sounds brighter while cutting to lacquer sounds warmer. True or false? Uh, that is, that is theoretically true. Mm -hmm. Um, in that, uh, the, the tooling that's used, uh, for DMM, Actually, I'm going to amend my answer here. That's in in every real world scenario, almost every real world scenario. That's that's basically going to be false. Like it, and it. This is hard to evaluate, right? Because what you need to evaluate is the same record cut two different ways, but pressed at the same plant, and then right. observe and then observe them side by side. And it's really rare to get to be able to set up a comparison like that. But um, the two, what it comes down to is the substrate and the tooling, right? So the the stylus that's used for DMM has to cut uh, into a metal disc. Uh, so you know that is that's diamond tooling, and it's cutting into metal. Um, the stylus that's used for lacquers, the vast majority of people use a, a synthetic ruby or a synthetic sapphire. I use a diamond to cut on lacquer. Uh, but, um, it's, you know, you're cutting into a, uh, into a very soft disc. And so that difference in tooling and the substrate that you're cutting into the material that you're cutting into does produce a difference in sound quality as the, as the, your playback needle traces it, but the difference is small and to really get a handle on it, you'd have to have that, that scenario where, you have a lacquer cut of a record, you have a DMM cut of a record that were done at the same plant. So we're removing that as a variable and you can, you know, with a, with a DJ mixer slide back and forth between them to appreciate <laughs> how much brighter the DMM is. It's, it's, it's very rare and it's very tough and the difference is going to be small. So, uh, you know, if people want really, really high resolution and, 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 crystal clear fidelity of high frequencies on vinyl, you know, half speed is what's going to give that to you. But most people are comfortable with the sound of the high end of vinyl being a little bit more polite than digital. 
And um, that's going to be a reality with DMM or lacquers, but lacquers are maybe two or three percent more. So, you know, the difference is going to be small, measurable and noticeable, but small. But you have to have one of those cases set up because you can't say, oh, you know, I got um, I got this Black Sabbath uh, DMM cut that came out last year and it's brighter sounding than the the one that I got from 1976. Right? It's like, OK, but that one was also remastered. And a million things have changed between now and then. You can't put that at the feet of DMM. That's not that's not what, the reason that you're noticing that. Right. So in in general, you would say you're you're not cutting corners by no pun intended by um, mastering your record to metal versus to lacquer. No, you're you're saving a step when you do DMM. Right. The you know the idea behind DMM is because with lacquers. You cut a lacquer and then you send a, the lacquers to electroforming, which is colloquially known as electroplating. And there's this aqueous solution that has uh, dissolved uh, metal in with the liquid. And there's there's big heavy balls of nickel at the bottom of the tank. And you run a heavy electrical current through and dip the lacquer in. And all the metal that's swirling around in there sticks to the lacquer and you peel off this metal imprint of lacquer. That's how you get parts for manufacturing. With DMM... You skip the electroforming step because you're just cutting directly into the metal, right? So, um, so you you save a step, basically. Uh, but most of the infrastructure for cutting in the world is not set up for DMM. Most of it is set up for lacquers. Uh, there's uh, and there's lots lots of people who just prefer um, the sound and process of working with lacquers as opposed to the sound and process of working with DMM. Uh, um, so it is, I guess, in terms of like scheduling and manufacturing it's a little bit more efficient because a, a step is skipped um but it's not like massively or really meaningfully um uh, more efficient it's um the if your dmm job gets gets processed faster than a lacquer job would at, a, at an equivalent plant it probably has to do more with staffing uh than it has to do with the the actual process and also, I think Adam mentioned half-speed mastering there. Um, just for anyone who doesn't know what that is, I'm not sure if I know exactly what that is, but I think it's you're basically running the cutting system at half-speed so that you're under-stressing you know, the cutting system, right? You're just kind of reducing the load on the cutting system so that it performs yeah, at a lower temperature, lower everything, basically. Yeah, it, it's, it's less about temperature and it's more about... Um, accurately tracing high frequencies. So the so the reason that 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 vinyl is a, is a little more polite in the high end than than digital is is because um you know it's a fully analog process, right? So the cutter head is cutting and, and a let's say a cymbal or um a piccolo or the 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 highest octave of a guitar is is you know it's really going off and it's very present at, at let's say to keep the numbers around 12 K. Now the cutter head is doing its best to keep up with reproducing something that's, that's oscillating 12,000 times a second. It's failing at doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so, so what you get is something that, you know, the, it's not like the information is, is inaudible, but it's just, it's produced in less detail because it's a fully analog process. And, and this, this device is trying its best to to move at cycle counts that are very very high. Now, if you slow the whole thing down by fifty percent, well, now twelve k six k, and everything's moving slower, and that can be traced perfectly. That can be cut absolutely crystal clearly, and therefore reproduced with crystal clarity on your playback system. So the idea behind half speed was, and most of the people who are interested in half speed are the real, like, you know, white glove, uh, jazz, uh, classical, like the, the high end has to be immaculate and perfect. Those are the people who really are into half speed. And the vast majority of people don't, even though half speed is it, you know, will, will give you the, the perfect, clarity in the high end that 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 some people miss in vinyl um it doubles the cost of everything because everything has to run at half the speed <laughs> so it's um for most people it's just not worth it 
Right. Can I piggyback on that and ask about 180 gram vinyl versus 120 gram vinyl? Does 180 Let's sounds 30 percent better? <laughs> no, false. Uh, 180 gram vinyl is archival grade vinyl. So you know if you want your uh, if you want your record to stand up uh, to play back for your great great grandchildren and and have it stored in the Library of Congress then then that's what it means to have 180 gram vinyl so there's there's two things that are happening with the 180 gram vinyl one is a psychological and marketing reality and then the other one is a physical reality the psychological and marketing reality is that you are sending the message to the fans of this band or this soundtrack or this project that no expense was spared to get the best pressing possible right bigger is better uh Yes, and that's important for certain labels and certain bands. That's it's a it, that's a real thing for people. I don't want to minimize it. Ironically, the thing that 180 gram materially and physically is best at uh, is that because the disc is so heavy, it will lay flat even if your turntable is a piece of garbage, right? So when you've got 120 gram records. It, it, I'm sure everybody has seen this, right? It, you can get a little bit of motion. There can be um, that, you know, the discs aren't always perfectly flat. 180 gram records, because they're so heavy, they're going to lay flat on that turntable, even if you've got a kind of crummy turntable. So the people who it benefits the most are the people who are least likely to spend money on it. Because if you have a $90 turntable, you're probably not buying 180 gram records. And if you have a totally tweaked out, you know, 2000 or $5,000 like setup, like, well, you, your turntable is going to be perfectly flat and there's, you know, there's probably a cork mat on it and all this stuff. And like you, the, it being 180 gram doesn't do anything for you. <laughs> That's my quiz. And, uh, Adam, of course, passed with flying colors. So lots of great information there for vinyl enthusiasts. And we could talk about this stuff novice. all day. We, we sure could. <laughs> we sure could. It's such a fascinating format. I am also curious, Adam, um, this sort of ties into, you know, I would say mental health, but it's probably more ties into uh, the the verges of insanity. Can you tell us a little bit about building a beautiful high-end mastering room and the process of that? And of course, Adam works in a northward acoustics room. It's, you know, as good as it gets. And um, I'm just curious to know, you know, I want to hear about the peaks and valleys and the laughs and the tears and the sleepless nights and... <laughs> all the good and the bad of going through the process of building a studio like that. Yeah. Uh, lot, yeah. Many, many challenges where to begin. Um, so I guess maybe where to start is why did I do this? Yep. Um, so a good, so I mentioned before that the first incarnation of telegraph in Portland was in a, a detached building that was behind my home. So that neighborhood started changing a lot. Uh, there was a lot of new construction happening, you know, a, th a thing that has been happening in Portland for, you know, over a decade is that all these, you know, um, cute single family mid-century craftsmen that were all over the city, uh, were getting bought and turned into uh, higher occupancy units, right? Like condos or apartment buildings. And that's just, uh, we can... Uh, poor went out for the for the bespoke history of Portland, but the reality is, is as more people move here, not everybody can have a cute single family home. There need to be apartment buildings and, and condos. That is good and that is bad and that is what it is. Uh, what was happening for me though, um, around the corner from where I lived, uh, was a boutique furniture store, and it had gotten bought and was going to get torn down, and a a new condo was going to get put up there uh with no parking lot right and then the same thing happened a block away in the other direction and then a block behind me and i was already in the position where i couldn't cut lacquers on on a friday because that was trash day and the vibration from the, the engine of the trash truck would get on the disc wow. it was audible you could totally hear it and so i'm just envisioning what three years of construction probably where I don't know, I can't work during business hours because of all the noise we're talking about jackhammers, pile drivers. Like it's, this is not, 
normal traffic sounds wafting in through the window, right? So I uh, got with my a commercial real estate agent and I was looking around for stuff. And I had already been in contact with Thomas Jouangen uh, from Northward Acoustics. Um, we had mutual friends, uh, had met in real life at several times. And he had come out to Portland once to take a look at the building that I was working in because I was wondering if it could sort of be retrofitted into a Northward room. And his recommendation was for me to not do that because so much structural stuff would have to happen to that building to make it suitable for a Northwood Acoustics build that I'd basically just be rebuilding the building. So I didn't want to do that for lots of reasons. Um, not the least of which that, it, that as I was working, I wouldn't have any, as I was working on the build, I wouldn't have anywhere to master. I wouldn't, my studio would be gone. Right. So why a Northwood room? Uh, I wanted to have a build that was a, you know, a build that would last me for the rest of my career. The The original uh, build of Telegraph in Portland was a, as I mentioned, a compromised build. I had to just accept certain things as realities. But now the building that I'm in now, I mean, the, you know, the ceilings were, were 70 feet and the I had just a totally open floor plan to build whatever I wanted. So I could I could build the studio right from the ground up. I could you know, north rooms are, are floated. Mine's my room is isolated to something ridiculous like 12 hertz. The uh and um so it wouldn't matter how the world changed around me. I would be the my studio is right next to train tracks, never hear or feel the train tracks at all. Uh there's a um uh you know uh, there's two brewery facilities that are right by. I never hear any truck stuff, forklifts you know, kegs getting dropped, like none of that stuff mm -hmm. makes it in at all, which is it, everything else can change around me. And this, this room will still be a good place to work. So um, that was re really the big reason was to get out and, and you, you never want to move when something is forcing you to move. Right. right. You want to, yeah. you want to try to get ahead of that and move on your terms. So that was the reasoning behind it. So, I commissioned Thomas to design the room. He took the time to design the room. We both agreed that the design of the room was good. And then I had to start with the city. Building is going to be different in different places. Dealing with Portland was an absolute nightmare. Um, mm -hmm. No one in City Hall really understood what I was trying to do. Uh, I'll give you I'll give you two quick examples. So the fire marshal was saying that I needed a sprinkler system that was way more than is needed for a space this size. Uh, and it's, it came from just a fundamental misunderstanding of what I was doing in here. And I paid actually a structural engineer based on Thomas's design to show the law in Oregon is that if you have a, a two hour burn rated room, you do not need sprinklers. And so what a two hour burn rated room means is uh, a fire could burn in this room for two hours before it escaped and got to the rest of the building. And conversely, if the rest of the building is on fire, that fire could rage for two hours before it penetrated this room. There's so much insulation in this room, guys. This is like a 33-hour burn-rated room. Like it's, I mean, there's there's literally tons of insulation around me. And so I put it to the city to not have sprinklers. They said no. And they said not only do you not have need uh, to not have sprinklers, but you've got to have this crazy sprinkler system because there's all this equipment in there that we don't understand. So you know what I needed was a sprinkler system that. Uh, you know, cost a couple thousand dollars and they were, they wanted me to spend more than 10 on it. Right. So that's one thing. Uh, another, another little potted nightmare was that I, the, the way that Thomas um, designed uh, the floor uh, and the, and the slab, uh, you know, there's, there's concrete and there's, a, uh, there's a acoustic isolation material that, that separates the room from the building around it. And uh, the city wanted me uh, to build a, a section of the slab in miniature. So take some of the acoustic they wanted, isolation. Material. They wanted a model. <laughs> they wanted a model. And then they, so they wanted me to build a model and then uh, subject the model to earthquake uh, shear pressure of like, uh, I think it was, I think it was seven and a half on the Richter scale to see what? how the room would fare. And I'm, 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 ta I'm talking I'm talking to the architect and I'm talking to the guy from the city. And I was like, dude, if there's a seven and a half 
magnitude earthquake in Portland, the ground is is sand, dude. Nothing has survived. With like, <laughs> I, 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 I can tell you what the test is going to say. Nothing, it's not going to make it. Nothing can make it under that. <laughs> that's you know, that's an absolute disaster. But I had to do that, and that took time, and it and it took cost. So, so dealing with the city was was a lot. I mean, it, active build time, you know, uh. Uh, uh, nails going into wood, concrete being poured was was 10 months for the studio. But if you include all the garbage that I had to do with the city, both before the room was done and then after the room was finished, it, you know, the whole thing probably took a year and a half, two years. Um, and then if you count the time that I was with a real estate agent looking for a good commercial space that would, you know, where I could be for the next 20 years, you know, add another six months to that. Um, so the whole process was probably a two, maybe two and a quarter year process, uh, even though actually building the room um, uh, took about 10 months. And, and it was a tough fucking 10 months. So I, I was working at the studio that existed all day working on projects. I would go, um, uh, pick up the kids, do the kind of like nighttime routine stuff. And then I would come back. I would go to the job site later because what I told the contractors that I was working on, there was, there was one main contractor and then he would sort of get somebody to come in and help him uh, as, as needed. Um, there was uh, for a while, there was like um, uh, an apprentice from uh, the carpenters union who was helping him. Uh, there were other contractor buddies of his who would come in and help. But what I told him was, look, man, I want you to, I want you doing skilled stuff. I don't want you stuffing insulation. I can do that. And when you leave, I want you working right up until the time that you want to stop and then stop. Don't clean up. I will clean up. So I would go at night and I would clean up the job site and prep it for him the next day. And I would stuff insulate, you know, all the like low skill monkey work that just has to get done to keep like a project going. And I would do that. So those days were really, really, really long. I knew that if I could keep that up, then it wouldn't take, you know, 14 months for the build to happen. If he, if, if he could just work at a good clip and I could just handle all the unskilled stuff, we could get it done. Um, but that's, that was a very hard schedule to keep for 10 months. And then there was a lot of, you know, unexpected financial stuff, stuff that I just couldn't have prepared for. And I, you know, you try to budget for this stuff the best you can. And, you know, and, and you, of course, if you've ever dealt with a contractor or you've ever dealt with a project, uh, you know, I think it's going to cost this, but it's probably going to cost this plus 10% because yep. stuff just happens. Right. But there was a, you know, massive expenses that I, that I couldn't have anticipated for. I'll give you an example. So uh, yeah, I was building this during the, the, um, uh, uh, the Trump presidency. Yeah. And I don't, uh, it seems like a long time ago, but do you guys remember when he was, uh, doing all that tariff stuff with Europe. Yeah. Yes. So a lot of the stuff for Thomas's builds comes from Europe, right? Um, so the, uh, the housing for the speakers is, is manufactured in Belgium. The door came from Germany. I'm thinking specifically about the door and then one of the kinds of insulation. So rigid fiberglass insulation, most people are going to be familiar with. This is Roxel. This is Owens Corning 703. There's a lot of that in this room, but there's a lot of another kind of insulation as well. And that's, you, you can't get that in America. It has to come from somewhere else. And um, so the door is made of steel and there was a steel tariff. Right. <laughs> so the cost of shipping the door to me from Europe was three times the cost of the door. And, you know, that was thousands of dollars that I just didn't have. But the door is sitting at a customs broker and I need to go get the door. So I've got to, you know, come up with this money. And that happened like a couple of times, like nasty surprises. That door was the door. Like you couldn't, you couldn't phone in a generic from Lowe's or something like you had to oh, and again, guys, it's not like I got a baller door. I got like the <laughs> like the, I got the <laughs> the cheapest door that would fit with Thomas's design because he, you know, he the thing that makes Thomas really special, and I think the greatest living mind in small room acoustics, is that he he models the whole room in software first, and then 
you know, runs impulses through his model and he can tell you he's the only guy in the world on planet Earth who will tell you how the room will measure before you build it. And then if that's not crazy enough to show you that he puts his money where his mouth is, he flies out at the end and measures the room with you to be like, told you so. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's, there are, there are some things that, you know, because we're just dealing with the, the expansion and rarefaction of air pressure, like a, the door needs to be of a certain mass to be able to, you know, all these physics things. Right. Right. So I, it's not like I got a crazy luxurious door. I got just, I just got the heaviest door that I could that fit <laughs> with the build, you know, in this place. And the, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the door was a, was a couple of thousand dollars and it cost over 10 to ship it. Wow. And there's Incredible. no tubes in it. and that was just you know that was just kind of my bad luck uh dealing with stuff that had to be shipped from overseas with just uh you know an adversarial trade policy yeah with with the president that we had and and then there was because i was running myself so ragged with um uh, uh the build and just like staying focused like you know got to clear projects and and work in the studio and then the night, night i've got to go and clean up and prep the job site for the next day and all this stuff i was really really not prioritizing my health at all and if you guys go on my instagram story and go back a few years to when the the build is happening there's a um uh there's a, a video of thomas and i playing soccer uh, with my kids in the in the great big giant hallway of the building that I'm in. Uh, a couple of days after that, I was in the ER for an emergency appendectomy. Whoa. And I had, my side had been hurting guys for like a month. And I just didn't, I was just like, got to keep my head down, got to get this thing done. And, uh, and I, yeah, I mean, that's, that story was like 48 hours before I was like completely laid out in a hospital. And it had burst. It completely ruptured. You know, they're giving you the, I don't know if anybody, if you guys have ever had an appendectomy, but it happened to my son about five years ago. It was crazy. Yeah. So you, you, you know, they give you the talk like, yeah. So about 10% of people need an appendectomy and about 10% of the people who get an appendectomy die. So you should, you know, it's like, wait, what? (laughs) How is this on the table? Um, But I had been so just neglecting signs that I had been getting. I was you know, totally exhausted, like totally stressed out because I, I had, you know, I had to move like at a certain date, uh, you know, Thomas had flown out to certify the room. My friends, um, uh, Josh Bonatti and Heba Kadri had, had flown out from New York to help me move the studio and move the lathe, get everything set up. So there were, there were people here whose, whose travel depended on this go, you know, going smoothly. And so it, it just had to get done. And I was so on this treadmill that it's just got to get done. I, I wasn't, you know, it's not even that I wasn't prioritizing my health. I wasn't even considering my, my health. Um, and it, you know, it, it ended up landing me in the hospital and there was, and it, it's to a, at a certain point, you know, it's like whatever could go wrong would go wrong. So I have, you guys have seen pictures of my studio, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, I had a very different idea for what the front wall was going to look like. Front wall is going to have this brush texture. It's going to be very, I don't know. It was going to be cool looking, I thought, right? So the guys who were going to come to help do that, that was on, that was the uh, July 1st that that was supposed to happen. And those guys called me and were basically like, we're taking a long July 4th weekend, so we're not going to come and do it. And the front wall is like the last thing that's got to happen. And so I, you know, I'm freaking out there's nobody in town who will do the thing that they were going to do on such short notice. So what we ended up doing was I just took extra flooring and we nail gunned it to the front wall because, you know, with Thomas's designs, the front wall is supposed to be reflective. Right. And so I just, I just needed a reflective service. It doesn't matter. (laughs) And so we ended up uh, staying all weekend. Um, Myself, my girlfriend, uh, Josh and Heba, like cutting flooring nailing it to the front wall and then going with one of those like wood pens, wood texture pens over each uh, nail that the nail gun put in 
<laughs> to like put a dot of wood texture over it so that you couldn't see where all the nails were. And yeah, and it took it took us all weekend. And it just those things had to happen because the room had to be ready for people who were traveling internationally to certify the room, you know? Right. That's I amazing. think it's a happy accident. I think the front wall looks amazing. I love I, I love great. the front wall. Well, thank you very much. I like it too. Because <laughs> you have to. <laughs> that, that's a skilled job too. When you said you only do the unskilled jobs, that's definitely a skilled job there. Uh, yeah, I don't see. I mean, whatever. Like cutting, you know, like the the flooring I got, guys. It was like it's like the snap together stuff from Lowe's. Like it's uh, like the she. It's not. I do not have. This is not. This is not, are not solid oak floors. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I feel like anything outside of electrical work for me is like a skilled job. Is vacuuming a skilled job? I feel like that's a skilled, that's skilled labor. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Okay. Well, Matt, what else do we have for Adam? I think we hit everything we wanted to hit. Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It's been super informative, super helpful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you guys for, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And um, I think what you're doing here is is a uh, is very cool. And um, I think uh, uh, people who are listening probably don't know, but once a lifetime ago, I did a mastering podcast, and these were the kind of chats that I tried to have. Um, and so I think I still think there's value in them, and I think that it's great to to have a place to be able to listen to stuff. Thanks so much, Adam. See you guys next time.